Hi, my name is Sarah. Hi, Sarah. I am a grateful member of the Al-Anon family groups and really excited slash nervous to be here. Um, thrilled. I want to thank Jane for calling me and inviting me to come and waiting patiently as I prayed and talked with my sponsor about doing so. This is my very busy season of year at work and getting away um, was hard. However, after praying about it, I felt a sense that I was supposed to be here. And I believe that God wanted me to come, and so I'm here expectant that he is going to do great things. And I invite you to, in, to come into that attitude with me, that you are supposed to be here too, and that God is going to show up in the next 45 minutes. Um, probably after that too, but <laughs> so egotistical. But, um, but having that attitude of expectancy is so good. And I've learned in Al-Anon that there's a difference between having expectations and having expectancy. And expectancy invites God into it. And expectations is all about my will and how it's got to look and how it's got to be. And so I'm trying to let go of that and just see what God has in store for me. I also want to thank um, Dusty and Lou for picking... I, I know. they. If you know them, you will clap. But... Um, they are amazing, and they have been such a great host couple for my daughter and I. It has really been fun, um, and if I, I think they carried the spirit of Yosemite to us all the way in Fresno and then drove us up here. It was just a fun, fun ride, and um, really, I felt like we already started the conference early yesterday. So um, thank you, whoever assigned them to us, because they're just such a joy. Um, and I also want to thank my friends who are here and people that have known me for many, many years, um, because it's really nice to see familiar faces. And when you grow up in program, um, it's nice to have people say to you, I remember when, and you are so different now. And it's just, it means something to have somebody who's seen your growth. And so those people that are here, you know who you are. Um, thank you. Um, and lastly, I want to thank my um, my guest, my speaker guest, who I brought, and that's my um, daughter, who is 17. And um, for a 17-year-old to come, ugh, that in itself, I know, clap, it's a miracle. <laughs> no. um, she's a really good kid, and um, I am going to share with you what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. But just to give you a quick snapshot of my life right now, I am a divorced single mother of a 17-year-old daughter and a 4-year-old son. And most of the time, my life looks pretty unmanageable. And to have this weekend, to be able to have just her with me and have this time, again, it was a gift I didn't know was, I was going to get. And I want to thank you for that. Um, God is so efficient. Everything gets used. And while um, you may be thinking, you know, I'm here for you, um, I also see that, you know, this was also a time for my daughter and I, and I want to thank you for that gift. Um, oh, okay, let's clap again. <laughs> oh, I'm so nervous. Okay, so I am going to share with you my story, and um, I just need to throw it out there because I don't know, I know there might be some alcoholics in the room, and maybe you've never heard an Al-Anon share before. I am not the best Al-Anon. I am certainly not the poster child for Al-Anon. In fact, I strongly believe if you cannot be a good example, be a loud warning. And, um, and I may be a loud warning for some of you, and that's fine. I am just going to share with you. Um, my life, some of the things that have happened to me, and how I have applied the tools of Al-Anon family groups into my life so that it can appear. Um, my goal is to live a life that somebody would say, there must be a God. That is my whole goal in life, is just so that no matter what happens, if someone were to look at my life, they would have to believe that there was something bigger than us. And um, because I know that deep in my soul, and that is where I truly at, and that's how I'm coming to you. Um, but I did grow up in a family affected by alcoholism. Um, for many, many years, nobody knew what alcoholism was. Nobody called it by its name. And um, today, almost everyone in my family has been exposed to the 12 steps in some way, and we recognize and openly call the disease of alcoholism by its name, and that is a gift. Um, However, growing up, um, my, my, uh, to sum it up, my dad was the yeller and, um, he was the drinker. 
My mother was the crier, and I was the screamer. And if you live next door to us, you heard me yelling and screaming. Um, I was very angry, and um, my father's an angry man and also charismatic. I think it's two sides of the same coin, and um, I inherited that from him. And um, I just remember always feeling gypped and always feeling cheated in life. And I knew something was wrong with my family. Something was very wrong with my family. Um, and I didn't know what it was. And I heard the alcoholic speaker last night say, if only I was born in a different family. And I identify with that because I would lay in bed and think, if only I had the same look, same personality, but a whole different family, my life would be okay. And I felt so gypped. I didn't. I looked at my parents. I looked at my mother like she was weak. I can remember being five years old when one of the last, one of the, kids I'm the oldest of five and one of the kids was being born and thinking I am a better mother than she is at five years old I had you know arrogant smug self-righteous and dominating um way back then and um and my father was weak because he couldn't keep a job not so much I mean the drinking bothered me don't get me wrong but my dad's what they call a periodic he could go a couple months without drinking so it, the, 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 the glaring thing for me was that he couldn't keep a job and we were always moving. And I mean always moving. We were all born in different states. We lived on communes and we lived in shelters and campgrounds. And um, he just we never had any money. And for a lot of years, and even in program, I associated alcoholism with poverty. And then I would sit in meetings and go on these panels and hear people share about um being able to buy everything except for sobriety for the one they loved. And I was devastated. I, I didn't realize that alcoholism didn't care how much money you made, what color you were, what, what your dad did for a living. It's a leveler. Um, and thank goodness recovery doesn't care either. But at that time, I just felt like if, you know, like if we could, if my dad could get a job and keep a job and we could stay in the same school, stay in the same place, I would be okay. And I was so mad that it wasn't like that. I could not, I, I had no tools for acceptance. And, um, you know, I, I've always been, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, and I used to be much more petite. Um, but people would like pat me on the head, like, what a cute little girl. And I just felt like, you know, like there's this ugly black monster oozing through my veins living in me. And I just, I, I mean, and it was such a dichotomy. I just felt so angry all the time, just tense like this all the time. I know alcoholism manifests itself physically in a lot of us. And for me at age 11, I started getting boils and the doctor would say, you know, She's under stress. Well, what kind of stress? Well, you know, everybody's like, oh, nothing's wrong. Nothing's going on. And um, today I know that it was, it was alcoholism. You know, my immune system was shot. And any time I got sick, I would get a boil. And it was humiliating. And it was awful. And um, it was the way my body was handling its stress. And it's just one of the effects of alcoholism. You do not have to drink to suffer from alcoholism. And if anything, my story will prove that. But... Um, I, I need to tell you, my dad was a pastor, and I have some residue, um, but he, um, he was a great man of God in the church, and uh, people loved him. He's a very charismatic man, wonderful speaker. He has a magnetism about him that would draw people in, and, I can, and it's, it's deteriorated over the years because he is still a drinker. Um, but when I was younger, there were times when I would see him just woo these people. And I would have this sense of, like, that's my dad. And it would be fleeting, but I would want to hold on to that so bad. Like, I don't know why a little girl always wants to just be so proud of their dad. But I would have it, and then in a second, it would be gone. And I would be like, you fool. And, you know, and I would beat myself up for even having that feeling. Because on the other, I mean... In the same exact moment or whatever, I'd be realizing I felt like I was the only one who knew the truth. I mean, we had no food in the house, and my dad was angry and mean at home. And, and then to everyone else, he had this whole different face. And if things got weird or too real, we would move. We would just up and move in the middle of the night, and he didn't pay bills. And we would have lights turned off, and, um, you know, our house was a mess all the time, and the yard was... Uh, just weeds everywhere and mangoes. I hate mangoes. The trees. We had this mango tree at this one house we lived in. And, and we would play on the mangoes and they'd get smashed. And then it would come into the house and into the carpet. And so the house smelled like mangoes. Just gross. I smell mangoes today. And I'm like, oh, my life. Anyways, 
I am a little bit of a dramatic martyr, but um, <laughs> when I when I did a fourth step, my first fourth step, I'm going to jump ahead real quick. My sponsor said, uh, you know, God has given you a gift that you've twisted. I mean, those character defects, they really were assets to begin with. But I have the ability to pump anything up. If it was bad, I make it worse. But in program, I'm learning that you give me just a little bit of good, and I can pump that up and make it amazing, and I can live a life of gratitude. So that same de- defect I had then in program has turned out to be an asset to me today. But, but then I made – and my mother used to say, why do you see everything black? I make everything worse. Oh, I have to say something really quick. You didn't know you were getting an Alateen speaker, did you? Yeah. See, they said, oh, we couldn't find an Alateen. I'm like, oh, you're getting two in one. So anyway, I do have a huge Alateen story, and I'm telling you that now. So let me jump ahead. So my mother's brother got sober, and that changed everything. He got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember my mother coming home and saying, sitting us all five on the couch and saying, your father is an alcoholic. And my first thought was one more name to call him. I honestly had no clue what what being an alcoholic meant. It really just didn't faze me. However, she wanted us to go to Alateen, and my mother started going to Al-Anon. And I remember my first meeting, clear as day. I'm not one of those people who had to come six months, a year, two years before the miracle set in. Immediately, I knew I was home. Um, we came in late. Um, give you a little background. I'm a really good girl. I come from a church background. My dad is, you know, a preacher's kid. So, um, I wore pastels because you look more pure, and um, and I'm, you know, I get straight A's, and I'm sweet, and whatever, and I'm trying to live up to the facade, and I walk into this Alateen meeting, and there's all different types of people, and there's this guy there, and he's missing his very front tooth, and his hair was black, but then it was this high, white, blonde, like bleach blonde. He had ear- Sarah knows him, Tim Meister. Anyway, he had earrings all the way up here, and he leaned back in one of those metal chairs, like dangerously low. And he said hi to me, and I got chills all over because he looked as bad as I felt on the inside, and I was home. And all I can say is I loved Alatine. It was the one place I didn't have to worry about anything. I could just be. And I was afraid to talk for a long time. I, it always surprises me and others, but I didn't share for a long time because I was so afraid I was going to ruin it. You know, like I just felt like I had this fragile gift that was being given to me, this amazing world I didn't know existed. It was literally like a spaceship landed and all my people got off, you know, and I was hearing people talk about things that I was feeling that I didn't even know I was feeling. And it was magical. And I was afraid that if I opened my mouth, I'd ruin it or You know, what if, like that deep down nagging feeling, what if it really is all my fault? You know, what if it really is me? And um, my father used to say, you have the spirit of Jezebel in you. And he would rebuke me and all of this stuff. And I remember being an Alateen and just thinking, you know, I have to be careful. I don't want this anger to ooze out. And it really was. You know, I was starting to do things inappropriately and act you know, it's like you can't contain it anymore. And, um, you know, I love that saying or whatever it is where it talks about you can always tell there's a problem with drinking by the, the, by the non-drinkers living in the home. You can tell by the wife and you can tell by the kids because they're off. You know, they're just a little weird. They're a little tweaked or twisted. You know, and, um, and the, guy, the drinker in the house, what? Ain't it grand the wind stopped blowing? You know, that type of thinking. And, and you know, and... You know, we're all like, ah, tweaked out. And so when I got to Alateen, I was 14 years old. It was April 30th, 1987, and that would be my recovery date. I have continuously gone to meetings for over 22 years now. That's the only thing required to have a date in Al-Anon is you just show up to meetings on a regular basis. Unfortunately, my slips don't smell, um, but I keep coming back no matter what. And I have um, continued to do, do so on a regular basis. And I started coming to meetings. Um, I remember my first commitment was the secretary, and so I stole the book because um, I didn't have the money for the book. And what would people think if I was secretary and didn't even have the little book, you know, the A Day at a Time in Alateen book? It's an amazing little red book. If you do meditations in the morning and you're looking for a new book, I would recommend that book. It's beautiful. Um, so anyways, I 
got my commitment, and shortly after I got into Alateen, um, some things transpired in my home, and it got really, really ugly. And I remember um, my dad was screaming and one more time, and I'm really grateful he never hit me. He could have hit me. He should have hit me. Um, but he hit walls, and television sets got thrown through windows. And I taught my youngest sister, who was five at the time, to dial 911. And I was just begging for them to take us away. I mean, I really wanted people to know there was something wrong in our house. And so... To my family, like looking back as an adult, I can see that, you know, they were like, stop, Sarah, just stop. You know, like, because I was so vocal. I was like, ah, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. And they were just like, leave it alone. Just stop. And, um, and my dad was like, I don't have a drinking problem. It's you. And, you know, when he pointed at me and I looked at the family, it's so dramatic in my mind, but it seemed like to me, They all sided with him and turned on me. And at 15 years old, I just bucked up and said, I'll show you. And and I left home. And when I left home, I was a good kid. I really was. I got straight A's. I was a virgin. I was a good girl. But I was so angry and so twisted on the inside. I couldn't live like that anymore. And I needed to prove that I could do it without them. And I really wanted to be away from that. I wanted to never look back. I was going to be somebody and I was going to show them because I'm stronger than you. And, um, you know, that thing about anger is it makes you feel like you have power. It makes you feel like with energy. It was like my vitamin that I took every morning. I took all my little resentments, lined them up, took them all, and then I would face the day. And, um, you know, it's a hard way to live. And I was tired, like tired on the inside. You know, like I was doing life just constantly battling. And I was going to my Alateen meetings, but then I was living on my own at 15 years old. And I was going to a private school. And the only reason why I got to go to that school was because of my grades. And I cleaned the bathrooms and I was on scholarship. And I got to move into a home, um, a really good Cuban Christian home. And they welcomed me in and they wanted me to be a part of their family. But I couldn't because that man drank a glass of wine every day with dinner. But yet his family was okay. He wasn't losing his job. They, they had cars in the driveway. And it just didn't seem right. It seemed wrong. How can he drink every day? And my dad can go periods without drinking, and we lose everything. And so because of my jealousy and because of my anger, I saw alcohol as the enemy. And I couldn't even allow that family to love me. I couldn't because I felt guilty. And then I would see my little sisters on Tuesdays and on weekends on my day off and that kind of thing. And I would do things with them, and they would look at me with tears in their eyes and say, why did you leave us? And I would have that guilt, you know, like I wanted to leave. I wanted to move on. But then what am I doing to my brothers and sisters? And who are you? Who do you think you are to try to break out of this? And that it's just this twisted way of thinking. Um, So I started working six days a week and I would go to my Alateen meeting on Tuesdays, and Tuesdays become, became like my favorite day. It was like the day that I was my age. Like I could forget all about being an adult and being that, you know, strong person and just laugh and have fun. And I got started being on committees, and I started doing things with the Alateens, and I got a sponsor, and I would, um, I would work steps one, two, and three, and then I would get a new sponsor because um, – I really was afraid of working a fourth step. I was so afraid that it was going to be all my fault. And the thing about alcoholism is it distorts everything. And I was taking responsibility for the wrong things. There were some things I had a part in, but it was backwards. And that's why the steps are so magical and powerful. And if you're sitting on a fourth step, I strongly encourage you to get through it because it will open your eyes to patterns you don't even know you have. And, you you know, it's like um, if you if you don't heal from it, you repeat it. And I was in this cycle, and I didn't even know it. And I had this huge hole in my gut. And, man, if alcohol worked for me, I would so be an Alcoholics Anonymous or be drinking or whatever. But it is not my thing. I could not keep putting something in me that caused my family so much pain. I felt like such a hypocrite. I tried drinking. I don't even like it. I don't like being out of control. I don't need the extra calories. It's... I, I, you know, I'm a party all by myself. I don't need to be drunk. I, I don't get it. It's poison, and you say it's medicine. I, I mean, just not computing. And um, so I was raw, but I will tell you, I, I do not judge people or teenagers or anything. I was in so much pain. I wanted something to fix me. I was looking for anything to give me a relief, and finally I found my fix, and that was basically the attention of a boy or several boys. And... Um, <laughs> 
And I began to overlap relationships because I got to a point where I could not be by myself. And if I felt like one was ending, I started another one. And I'm not really proud of that. But what I share it with you because it shows me how broken I was. I could not be alone. Now, I told you I don't like drugs and alcohol. However, I found myself attracted to people who do. And... Um, I, that was baffling, too. So I understand the whole, like, having ideals that alcoholics talk about, but living way over here, um, because I had these grandiose ideals for myself and standards and expectations, and yet I would pick these, you know, losers. And uh, there's no other nicer way to say it. But, but I will tell you, there was a benefit to me being with these guys, because next to them, I look so good. And... Um, and I remember thinking that people were, like, walking by going, wow, she must have, like, a really big heart, you know? And um, really, they were probably like, what is wrong with that girl? She is an idiot. Why is she with him? And, um, you know, and I just, I, I mean, the words, I need you, way more romantic than I love you. I mean, come on. If you're telling me you need me, that just does something for me. Um, you know, I'm, woo, um, it gives me purpose. It gives me, you know, something to cling to. And, and if I can make you feel okay, maybe I'll be okay too. And, um, and that just became the cycle in my life. And I was doing this cycle, and I was in Alateen, and I was kind of getting the recovery, but I wasn't working the steps. And um, I found myself pregnant. And um, I always say that was my bottom in program, um, but since I've hit several others. But at that time... <laughs> It was my bottom. It was like the worst thing that I could have possibly have done. I was 18 years old. I came from a really solid, you know, um, faith background. It was like huge that I was pregnant. And um, and I was pretty messed up about it. And uh, I was very scared. And I was looking at my life. And, um, you know, my mom was on welfare. I remember being at her house once pregnant. And this woman walked in and said, oh, generations of welfare. And... Um, Having that pride well up in me, like, no, 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 don't you look at me like that. And I did not want to repeat what had happened to me. I did not want to live this life again. And I just didn't know how to get away from it. And so I remember telling a friend in Alateen, I'm just going to move away. I'm going to put this baby up for adoption. And then I'm going to come back to California and I'll just start over and everything's going to be okay. And she was like, what? That's a geographic. That's exactly what your dad did that you hated most about him. You're not going to do the same thing. I don't care what you do with the baby, but you're going to do it in Alateen. You're going to go through the whole thing because we don't do anything alone. And it, it, they kept me planted, and they circled around me, and um, they kept me planted. And I remember being pregnant in Alateen and um, coming to conventions and doing things, and I looked really, really young. I mean, I looked even younger than 18, and so it was, um, it was a very hard time, and I can remember people looking at my hand and wanting to cover it up because I wasn't married and just being so ashamed. And um, anyways, I decided I would put the baby up for adoption, and I remember one day I was sitting at a bus stop, and um, it was very dramatic, you know, like, I want to tell you, like, a bus went by and, like, water splashed up on me, and I was dirty and wet, but that really didn't happen. I was just sitting there. Um, but, but in my mind, it was really dramatic. And, um, and I just had this, all of a sudden, this thought that if I put the baby up for adoption, I'm going to go back to living exactly as I was living. And I just couldn't. I was tired. Like, I felt like I was at the end of my life. And at 18 years old, you're supposed to feel like you're at the beginning. And I just felt so old on the inside, so, so old. And I remember saying a prayer and just being like, God, I really want to have this baby, and I want to live life differently, and I want her to have a different life than I have, but I cannot do it by myself. And so if you show up in a really big way, I'll do my very best. And um, I just made a decision at eight and a half months to keep her, and that is my daughter who is here. And if you see her... Um, we, she looks exactly like me. We're nothing alike in personality, but she is a lot like me in facial features. So we, we always joke that had I put her up for adoption, we probably would have passed each other and known instantly that we belong together. And um, I believe that she picked me, and God said, her? And, um, and she insisted. 
and said, I will remind her of who you are. And that is exactly what she did. And so that baby was born. And when she was six weeks old, I went to the Al-Anon convention. And I don't know how you guys find sponsors, but I ran into mine. And I mean, I physically ran into her. I was going around the corner and she was coming around a corner and I ran into her. And I remember I had heard her speak once. And it, it was right around that age when they tell you start to come into Al-Anon. And I had started going to Al-Anon meetings. And I knew I identified and I knew I qualified for Al-Anon. And so I asked her to be my sponsor. And I didn't know that at the time that she was involved with a really structured Al-Anon group. But when I found out, I was gung-ho for it. I was all about it because I wanted somebody to tell me what to do. I wanted to believe that if I did a certain formula in my program, that my life would be okay. Really, that alcoholism could never get me or my little girl again. I really wanted to protect my little baby from the disease of alcoholism. And I was willing to do anything. And I began to go to meetings every day. And I worked the steps, all 12 steps in order, you know, like I didn't jump around and I got through the fourth step and I had over a hundred resentments. And I remember my sponsor's sponsor said, someone at your age should not have that many resentments. What are you just bumping into people? Oh, I resent you. Oh, I resent you. You know, and pretty much I was taking, I was keeping track of every wrong being done to me. And, um, and it was getting heavier and heavier, and that's partly why I was so tired. And um, I got to work the steps, and I got to make a commitment to be single and get to know who God was and reacquaint myself in that, that whole process. And I began... Uh, to sponsor Alateens and help them with their transition from Alateen to Al-Anon, and, which is such a hard thing to do because in Alateen you're a big fish in a little pond, and in Al-Anon you're a little fish in a big pond, and it's overwhelming. That transition was so hard. And so I became to be of, I, I started being of service, and it, and my life started to come, come back. The life in me started to come back, and, um, and I met a man. And uh, he was sober and Alcoholics Anonymous. And to me, I know there's a book called The Dilemma of the Alcoholic Marriage. I never understood the name of that. I, to me, thought it was The Solution, an Alcoholic Marriage. And um, because I knew I was attracted to that personality, so why wouldn't I marry a sober alcoholic? And, like, looking back, I'm like, okay, I willingly sought out and married an alcoholic. How insane is that? But in my mind... Um, you know, I was so in love with the program of Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous and sobriety and just that wonderful way of life that we have and share um, that it was magical. And he wasn't just sober. He was shining sober. He was two years sober. And I mean, he was. Uh, we, he was going on panels to Chino Men's Prison, and he sponsored guys, and he carried literature in his dashboard, and, uh, you know, he went to meetings and had a sponsor. I mean, he was just on fire for Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was on fire for him. And he just, you know, we immediately clicked. The rocks in his head fit the holes in mine. And... Um, I remember when he first asked me out, the very first time he asked me for my phone number, and he wrote it in his big book. Okay, is that not a sign? Yeah. So, mm-hmm, destined or doomed. And I just knew we were going to have this whirlwind of a life together that was going to be amazing. And it was. It really was for a lot of, a lot of years. Um, anyways, he... Uh, he was amazing. <laughs> so we hooked up. We were engaged within four months, and then we got married a year later. And the reason why we had a whole year of, en of engagement was because I really wanted to practice the 12 steps and 12 traditions, and I wasn't self-supporting. I was still trying to get through school, and I wanted to at least get my two-year degree. I know that college is not for everyone, but I need to back up real quick and tell you that right before I got pregnant, was the time that kids were applying for college. And I was a 4.0 student, living on my own. I could have gone to any school I wanted to go to, and I didn't apply to one school, not one. And for years, I thought that was because I had a fear of failure. And then after I did my first four step, I found out it was a fear of success. Because I know how to handle the bad stuff. Um, and I want to dream about the good, but if I start taking steps towards the good or maybe what God has in store for me, I get so scared. And I will sabotage myself unless I'm surrounded by people pushing me forward saying, no, no, this is what God is calling you to do. Keep taking one step and put one in front of the other. But on my own, I will run from any good in my life. And so here I was and I was going and, and like I said, college isn't for everyone, but I knew somewhere deep down it was for me. And um, anyway, so I got to go to this. Thank you. Junior college. And um, 
I wanted to be self-supporting, and I wanted to have something to offer. And so when I walked down the aisle, um, my little girl walked down the aisle, too, and she wore a pink wedding dress with a pink veil, and she got her daddy that day. And um, it was like the biggest dream I ever had. And not so much to have a sober husband, that was cool, but I was giving my girl a sober daddy, and that was just everything to me. And um, we had an AA Al-Anon wedding. In fact, our wedding cake was the AA Big Book and the Al-Anon Book Book merged together. <laughs> and um, it was so cute. And, you know, my sponsor was my maid of honor and his sponsor was his best man. And, um, you know, we read AA and Al-Anon literature. And I think we even had in our vows, like, you have to stay sober, I, I think. Anyway, um, that was the deal. And um, so, you know... In our literature, it says each time there's a sober period, we think the problem has gone away. And that was the, the little sober period I was living in. I told you I was a good Al-Anon member. Man, I was a super Al-Anon member. I was going to all kinds of meetings. I was reading seven daily readers. I sponsored people. I had call times. I did service work. I mean, I was it. I was doing everything you could. And it wasn't until my husband drank that I realized I was doing all of those things to kind of ensure that alcoholism wouldn't get us again. And, um, when he drank, he had almost nine years of sobriety. He was just a couple weeks shy of his nine-year birthday. And it was a shock. It was like a grenade went off in my home. Even though I knew he was a sober alcoholic, I did not ever expect him to drink again. And I was shocked. It was not when things were going bad. We were getting along great. We had two cars in the driveway. We had just bought a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. We just bought a house. Our daughter was in private school. I mean, everything looked good on the outside. And even in our groups, everything looked great. And so to me, I didn't know. It came out of nowhere. In fact, the week before... Um, it all came out. I thought I smelled alcohol in our bed, and I immediately dismissed it as it must be the dog. Because <laughs> I did. Because it was, in my denial is so great. In my mind, it was more likely that my golden retriever had beer spilled on her somewhere from that, some weird neighbor than my, you know, the guy who says he's an alcoholic and wants to drink every day, um, picked up a drink like I could not even fathom I mean he was so in love with AA I couldn't even fathom how he could drink and he didn't just like go out and have a beer I mean it got really ugly really fast and um, shortly after that things started happening in our home group that just didn't make sense and uh, that we have a saying in Al-Anon it's okay to love an alcoholic and it became really apparent that in the group I was in it was only okay to love an alcoholic if he was sober and that was really painful. After a couple of months, I was hearing things like, no, you're done. Stop talking about it. You're messing up the newcomers. And I was like, well, uh, you know, I don't care about the newcomers right now. I'm in a lot of pain. And um, I remember my little girl was seven, and she came to me, and she said, Mommy, they're talking about Daddy at the meetings like he's a monster. He's not a monster. He's my Daddy. And I remember getting down on her level and looking at her in the eye and saying, that's right, baby. He's your Daddy, and no one can take him away from you, and da 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 and then she said, well, why can't I see him? And I screamed at her, because he's drinking. And I realized as I said that, I might as well have called him a monster. Is it okay to love an alcoholic or just one that's sober? And my whole world changed. And I began diving into the literature. My, my sponsor told me the answer was in the 11th step. And um, she was right. Um, I started praying, and I started going to other meetings, and I was really searching and seeking and wondering. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I know there's people that have been in long-term marriages with someone who drinks. Maybe that could be me. Maybe I could still save this marriage and just love a drinker. But see, even as a little girl, I remember saying, I will never have alcohol in my home. There was something about drinking that really bothered me. And I, I remember telling him, I swore to myself I would never live with a drinker, so you can't live here. So all his stuff did. And um, so all his stuff lived with us, and he would live other places and then come spend the night, and we tried to make this thing work. And it was awful. It was crazy. Um, he would show up at conventions for me, um, and now I see that was such an act of love. He didn't want to be there. That's the last place he wanted to be. And he'd show up loaded, and I would be like, oh, my God, and I'd be, like, hiding it. Like, I didn't want anyone to know. You know, God, we were the speakers two years ago, and he's loaded. You know, what are people going to think of us? And I was so ashamed, and the sponsor that I got was a amazing because she helped me laugh and she showed me the humor of the situation and she's like well, what you're going to hide from other alcoholics that he's loaded are you kidding everybody knows 
You know, and she she would make me laugh, and I would be like, okay, everybody knows. And you know what? Excuse me. You treated him the same. You treated him the same as when he was the speaker two years ago. I was blown away by that. The way one alcoholic loves another alcoholic, incredible, magical, amazing. And I remember thinking, why can't I love him like that? I was so angry. The anger all came back, and I realized, man, I never did the first step. I never admitted I was powerless. I still have power because if I work a good enough program, he'll stay sober. And I didn't realize my whole life was surrounded around working a good enough program so that our life would be safe from alcoholism, thinking that in these rooms I'm safe, alcoholism can't get me. And, you know, Al-Anons are like tea bags. You really don't know how strong they are till you put them in hot water. And during that time, I found out my program was weak. It looked good on the outside, but really on the inside, I had never worked step one. I had really never turned it over and said, God, this thing is so much bigger than me. So much bigger than me. Anyway, he was trying to meet me at the conventions, and I would try to go into his dark world. And I remember going to places where there was alcohol being served, and I was just weird around alcohol. I mean, I saw it as the enemy. I saw it as poison, and I couldn't even act natural around people that were drinking. And it was just awkward. And I remember I had a service commitment, and he was, um, and our daughter was with him, and I showed up, and and they, she was in the jumper, and. Everybody was drinking, and it was like a kid's birthday party. I didn't know people did that. And I remember pulling her out of the jumper, yanking her out and going, Carissa, there's drinking here. Are you okay? And she was like, it bothers you, not me. What? You know, she was eight years old. And I mean, and it was like a wake-up call. And I was like, okay, you know, and I, it was hard. It was just a really hard time. I, um, like I said, it was ugly. He wasn't just drinking. He was using drugs, and he was committing felonies, and he was doing bad, 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 bad stuff. And um, I remember he was fighting this one particular charge, and I really felt like I sided with the courts. Um, and he would ask me to, like, come to court and support him, but I didn't really want to support him because I, I thought they should lock him up. And um, so I had this thing going on, and I remember talking to my sponsor and being like, I don't know what to do. Should I take him to court? Should I not? I mean, I love him, but I hate his actions. I hate the disease. I don't like what he's doing. I don't know what's going to happen to our family, but I want to make it work. And she said to me, you know, Sarah, I don't know what your answers are, but it's more important to me, not that you do what I think you should do, but you just keep sharing with me. You keep, And she kept me out of the secrets. It was the best thing she ever said to me. So sometimes I would hold my breath and tell her, oh, God, I'm doing this, or oh, this is what I'm thinking, or can you believe this? Because I'd be so ashamed. I would think, oh, I've been going to these meetings for years, and I'm having these really crazy, sick thoughts. Well, I was in the midst of active alcoholism, and even a normal person goes crazy during those situations. So she kept me sharing, and I would share with her. And to be honest with you, I still don't know what the right answer is. I know that there were some days that I went to court with them, and there were other days. I couldn't go. And, you know, it is what it is. But what happened was I started exercising my gut muscle that was really underdeveloped. Because when I was in that strong sponsorship group, I trusted, I put my full trust in, in my sponsor and in my home group. And I had never really trusted my own God, my gut. And I had never developed that conscious contact of my own. Because when all is said and done, it's me and God. You know, and if I don't know his voice, like I could tell you what my mother's voice sounds like, but until you hear my mom's voice, you won't know it's her. And it's the same with God. I had to know God's voice for myself. It couldn't just come from my sponsor. I had to have my own relationship. And so I started to exercise that gut muscle and I made some bad decisions, of course. But I practiced and I, I got to hear his voice and find out that God loved me no matter what and that God loved him no matter what. And that somehow good was going to come out of this ugly, ugly situation. Anyways, he finally decided to get, turn himself in and stop fighting the system. I was so proud of him. And so he made a date to turn himself in, and I made a really nice dinner, and I got a babysitter. And, um, you know, we had this nice dinner. The babysitter showed up, and I was like, okay, honey, time to go to jail. And... Um, like we were going off to Hawaii or something, and he did not look enthusiastic. He sat on the couch, and I was like, come on, you promised, let's go. I mean, because I really thought he had to be sober in jail, and I thought it would slow things up or at least give us a pause. You know, we were going, 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 and such insanity. I really needed a break, and I, I didn't know, understand why he wasn't welcoming a break. But um, 
I mean, I would have traded places with them any day. Come on. They feed you there. You don't have to clean up after anyone. You don't have to show up at work. I mean, it looked to me very attractive. That's how nuts I was. And, you know, so I went to the restroom, and I came out, and he was gone. And I was like, what? He ran away. And so I started looking for him. I got the neighbors looking for him. We knew he wasn't far because he was on foot. And um, anyways, we found him behind 7-Eleven drinking a bottle of wine, and it was it was a a sad sight to see that. And I remember yelling at him and saying, what is wrong with you? You can't show up at, at jail drunk. And, um, <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, what is wrong with you? I can't show up at jail not drunk. And it was like something clicked. And I had this, this much compassion. And I thought, oh, my God, he is suffering. He's not having fun at me. He didn't do all of this on, pers- you know, on purpose. It's not personal. It's got him. And um, anyway, so we showed up at jail, and it was long and dramatic. We said goodnight, everything. And I'm pulling out of the parking lot, and he comes running out. And he's like, they closed, and I have to come back tomorrow. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Tell him to open the doors back up. I'll do the paperwork myself. What? So mad. So I had to take him home, and I'm like, it is really hard to get him to go to jail. Like, I don't know why they're, they're so hard on us. So the next morning, I had an Al-Anon commitment at a World Service Assembly, like an all-day commitment. It's from 10 to 4. So um, this girl that I sponsored came to pick me up, and we, I said, we got to drop him off at jail first. And she's like, oh, okay. And um, so we go, we drop him off, goodbye, kiss, 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 all romantic. Oh, I'm never going to see you again. Anyways, I was so glad to be rid of him. We're on our way to Fullerton, and I remember she looked over at me. She's so cheeky, and she's like, I wonder how many other Al-Anons dropped their husbands off at jail today. <laughs> and we went and did our commitment, and somewhere in the middle of the day, I got a call, and it was him, and I'm like, you're not at jail, are you? And he's like, no, I'm at the block. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I was so mad, and I remember feeling so proud of myself because I said, well, I'm not leaving my Al-Anon commitment. You have to stay there all day till it's over. And I'm helping them clean up, too. And, um, like, I was somehow working my program. I'll show you. And, um, you know, and so that poor guy was there all day without cigarettes, without money, walking around. Um, and I was trying to punish him sober. Anyways, we showed up, and I had to punish him some more because I saw there was a sale at the Gap. So we... <laughs> I gave him the keys to the van. He slept in the van. We went shopping. We went and dropped him off, and they were closed. So we took him home, and it was such an ordeal. He finally got to go, and um, he was there for a while, and I remember that whole process was ugly, too. And I remember my little girl um, wanting to see him and not wanting to go there and see him, and that was really difficult, too. Alcoholism affects the whole family. And, um, you know, again, you don't have to drink to suffer from alcoholism, and everyone Everyone is affected in some way. And here I was looking at this little girl that I had vowed to raise in a sober home, in a recovery-filled home, and she was affected not just by him but by my actions as well. And I can remember seeing a book that said, uh, Potatoes, Not Prozac. And um, the whole idea was you eat a baked potato every night instead of taking Prozac. And I thought, oh, that's a great idea. So we made baked potatoes, and I told my daughter, you know, this is going to help Mommy stop crying. I mean, how sick is this, right? So we're eating baked potatoes every night, (laughs) and I don't know when it was, but one day we were driving, and I did my whole flip out, and I had this angry outburst, and I looked over at her, and she had tears coming down her face, and she said, Mommy, the potatoes are not working. (laughs) Dang it. I thought I found a quick fix. So I took my butt to an Al-Anon meeting, and I've embraced the slow process of recovery and, you know, did the deal and went through the feelings, and there was no fast forward or fast track. You know, I just went through that mucky muck. And all I can tell you is I went through it um, with support. And I had a sponsor who loved me, who made me laugh. In fact, every time I called her, she would go, Sarah! Like she was waiting to hear from me. Do you know how that feels when you're down and you feel like you're in the worst place in your life and somebody says your name with such enthusiasm, like they love you no matter what? Oh, it was so healing. Today, I'll get calls from crazy sick people. They always are attracted to me. And um, anyway, now I have call waiting, right? And I see they're calling. And I remember Nancy's voice. And I purposely, even though I don't want to take this call, I'm busy, you know. Um, I press answer and I say, Pepper, Janet, 
with enthusiasm because I want to give back something, just a little bit of, of love and attention to something, you know, that was so great to me at a time when I was hurting so bad. And so I'm trying to pay it forward. But at that time, I was so broken, and hearing my sponsor's voice, it was... Um, magical. And she walked me through that time, not by telling me what to do, not by giving me my answers, but walking with me. And that was amazing. Um, anyways, he did get out of jail. He did, while he was in jail, made a decision to get sober. I was like, what? I thought you were sober. Like, I was like so naive. So I didn't know you couldn't use and drink in there too. But um, anyways, I figured it out because um, the sobriety date's like in the middle of his term. But anyway, um, he made a decision to get sober, and I was ecstatic because I thought we were going to go right back to where we were and, you know, live in this sober, happy life again, which I loved. I was having a good time. And, um, you know, he was dark and broken and unresponsive, and he came out um, just really dark, and I still couldn't reach him. I remember when he was drinking and being loaded and trying to talk to him and just feeling like he was a vapor. You know, I was watching him get sucked up and the life was just slowly seeping out of him. And I just remember I felt like I could put my hand and it would go right through him like there was no substance there. And when he came out of jail and he was broken and he was uh, making a decision to be sober, it was the same thing. He was not whole. And, it, you know, new sobriety was as uh, it was like a screeching surprise to me. It was sad, and it was painful, and it was um, disturbing. I mean, I wanted a break. It's like, when's my time going to come? You know, I was expecting him to walk through the door and put all the pieces back together. And, you know, I'd been holding everything on my shoulders, and now it's your turn. And, um, and he took a job that required him to leave at 6 in the morning, and then he started taking this class. And, I mean, now I know, hey, he just got out of jail. He, he wasn't really employable, um, and he hadn't worked for a year and a half. And so, um, you know, he took whatever he could get to try to contribute to our family. But at the time, I was like, why are you doing this? He would leave at 6 in the morning, come home at midnight, Monday through Friday. And then Saturday, he would leave in the morning and be with his AA guys all day long because he only went to that one meeting a week. And then on Sundays, he had court-appointed counseling, and he had to see his probation officer. And then in the afternoons, he would spend time with our daughter. And there was no time for me. And I felt chipped, and I felt cheated, and I was angry and frustrated, and I remember coming down on him and, and hating who I was and thinking, oh my God, I don't want to be one more person telling him something he already knows, you know? And I, I could feel myself turning into that, like I basically turned into his mom. I mean, who wants to be with their mother? And, um, but I couldn't stop. I was so super responsible and so super arrogant and self-righteous and just knew what he needed to do. And, um, and so the, the more I snatched toward him, the farther he pulled away. And finally he said, you know, Sarah, I lost so much when I went out, so much. And I think part of that was my love for you. And it was like, ah, oh, this dagger in my heart. It was like the biggest betrayal. Like it was harder for me to hear that than to hear he was using and drinking again. I, I just, what? After all I've done for you? Are you kidding? I should be rejecting you. You know, who are you to reject me? And I remember calling my sponsor and being a basket case. And she just said, shh, breathe, shh, breathe. Some marriages just don't make it. And say that. And so I would say it. Some marriages just don't make it. Now call us. And it's not his fault. And it's not my fault. Some marriages just don't make it. And stop there. And not get into trying to figure out what I did and what he did and all the blame and all that. And it's just, okay, some marriages just don't make it. And we got a divorce. And I became a single mom. The last thing I wanted to do. And um, the single mom thing was not fun. But God showed up in a really big way. And um, I ended up getting to move on the beach in Seal Beach and live right near the ocean, which is a magical place for me. Just like this is a magical place. I look out there. Oh, my God. There is a God. This big, wide world is so huge. And he has such big blessings for me. And I am so closed up in my own world, in my own, you know, the way the disease of alcoholism has affected me. I retreat. And God just wants me to open up and receive. And you teach me that. You know, work the steps. Get rid of that stuff and open up and receive this great amazing just taking it all in and that's what I did looking at the ocean and I began to walk my dog morning and night and I would walk by the ocean and I just would sing and I don't sing well but I would sing <laughs> these songs that I remembered from 
Sunday school, and my dog loved it. She, I swear she would, like, dance as we walked when I would sing. I think she thought I was singing to her, but it became this, like, prayer and meditation. I'm not really a good meditation person. I'm too hyper. I have all this energy. I'm, I'm a recovery in action kind of gal. And um, so... You know, like praise and worship became my meditation. It became the time that I could pour out my heart and pray out loud and just be, just be. And, and I would hear things like, um, I got you, Sarah, to hear that. I got you. And I just knew I was going to be okay no matter what. I felt it. I knew it. It wasn't coming from a podium or from a sponsor. I was hearing God's voice, and I knew it was going to be okay. So would I trade all of that pain to have that magic? Probably not, because it was magical. Um, My daughter will tell you that Seal Beach was her favorite time of life. And um, we lived together. You know, her and I, and it was a great time. And um, her dad was really active in her life. He became the soccer coach or assistant soccer coach. Um, and he looked good on the soccer field. And, you know, I was busy. I had lots of commitments in Al-Anon. I was working full time. I was a district rep. Uh, you know, because to me, busyness is like the way an alcoholic uses, you know, alcohol. I can numb out being so busy, being so important. I don't have to feel the feelings. And so I had all these commitments and I was running, running, running. And her dad, who was newly sober, um, but getting his life back, he was present and he was available. And so on the soccer field, everybody thought he was great. And I, he was like happy. And, and I was so angry. Like, and I remember calling my sponsor and being like, what is it about an alcoholic? They just do the snow job on everyone. And, you know, he looks like this hero and I look like the freak, you know, the crazy freaked out person because I'm always late. I'm like miss half the games because I've got Ellen on commitments, you know, and um, and she would say things to me like, how important is it that your daughter sees your husband or your ex-husband as a hero? And I was like, "Okay, it's pretty important. And she's like, you have the power to ruin that. Are you willing to do that? And I'm like, no. And she's like, okay, then you treat him with respect and kindness and courtesy and dignity. And you treat him like he is the hero that everybody else thinks he is. You treat him like he is deserving of all of that. Because that might be the one place that he feels good about himself. And God is giving him that opportunity. And who are you to take it away? And, you know, that helped me. And I started treating him with kindness and respect and dignity. And I started to get healed. It started, it was like healing my pain to treat him better. Anyways, I remember he asked our daughter, can I go to church with you guys? And she said to me, mommy, it's an answer to prayer. And I was like, I wasn't praying that. <laughs> it was an answer to my prayer. And um, so I sucked it up and, you know, I said, yes, you can come to church with us and whatever. And so we would sit together in church and they would dismiss the children. And then you have to sit next to each other. And so we started sleeping together and <clears throat> Because that's what you do when you go to church together, right? I'm a real preacher's kid. So somewhere in that process, we both looked at each other and we're like, what are we doing? You know, we were like having this secret affair and um, I was embarrassed to tell people because after all I'd been through, it's like so it's so silly. I mean, I was I was embarrassed that I loved an alcoholic when he went back to drinking. I was embarrassed that I loved an alcoholic who was in jail. Then he got out of jail and rejected me and I was embarrassed to love him. And now we're back, you know, dating my ex-husband. How embarrassing is that? And I mean, my sponsor is like, just get over that ego. That's just such ego. You know, stop. Just live your life. I mean, why are you making it harder for yourself? And anyway, so I would I started sharing about it and. We took a vow of celibacy, and we decided to do things right, and we decided to get married in a church with our family present. And I, and I need to back up and share with you that most of my family is not a part of this fellowship, though they have come in and out and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, I have great relationships with all my brothers and sisters. They love me. I love them. And it's because of you guys. Honestly, it is. I have heard their stories at this podium enough to know that they're saying, I love you, even if it comes in different words. And, you know, my father um, is weird, and um, and it's okay. And I, you know, I, my sponsor gave me this great visual. She said, you know, you're the kind of person who goes up to a quadriplegic and says, carry me. The guy has no arms, no legs, and you expect him to carry you. And, um, you know, and so I, I visualize my family as as quadriplegic and handicapped and I stop asking them to do things they're incapable of because they want to I know they want to 
I know my family loved me. If love was a cure for alcoholism, I probably wouldn't be here because there's a lot of love in my family. But there's also a lot of sickness. And detachment is the tool that it's like the adapter that makes it possible for me to be around sick people. And so guess what? The world doesn't have to get well for me to associate with you. I get to get well so I can associate with the sick. And that is amazing. There's such freedom in that. Um, Oh, hey. (laughs) Not me, but... Let me back up and tell you, we did get married again, and it was amazing. It was, you know, the room was filled. There was such diversity in the room because that's what we are, right? There's all kinds of different types of people here. And um, it was such a, we called it a restoration celebration. And, um, you know, people at my work thought I was nuts. I've had the same job for 14 years, so they've seen, like, the whole thing. And, um, you know, and... Most people don't get it. And, um, you know, when you say, oh, I'm marrying my ex-husband, they go, you know. Um, But I've learned it's okay to love an alcoholic and it's okay to put my trust out there. And I don't want to be one of those suspicious people just looking, you know, and waiting. And I don't beat myself up for blaming the dog for drinking anymore. I, I don't. Because I don't want to be that kind of person looking for the next shoe to drop. I want to live life expectantly, with joy, with enthusiasm. And, um, and, and I can say to you that I don't regret marrying him again. Because as a result of that marriage, I had a little boy. And my son, Luke, is such an amazing gift in my life. And um, while I will tell you that when he left, um, Luke was only seven months old. I was pretty scared and pissed because I didn't want to be a single mom and do this thing all over again with a a little boy. And I was like, God, what are you doing to me? And I heard him say, I'm not doing this to you, but I will go with it with you. And I felt his presence. And I will tell you that when our life blew up the second time, it wasn't because of alcohol. And it was really kind of scary and disturbing. And all I can tell you is that I knew he was lying and I didn't know about what. And I thought he was using again. And I just approached him and said, you know, I, I, I don't know what you're lying about, but you're lying. And I think you need to leave. And he said, okay. And that was scary. I thought he would put up a fight. I thought he would do something. And he just left. And I didn't, I was like, I, I, just kidding. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. But um, I was shocked. And to, to this day, I have a little bit of like, oh, my God, what happened? Like, how did that happen? He's never asked to come back home. And um, we were separated for several years before we finally decided to go through the divorce process. And we did it on our own. We didn't get lawyers. It's very amiable. We're not yelling and screaming at each other. Um, But as a result of him leaving, he got to hit a bottom and find out that he suffers from another addiction even deeper. And um, got to get some help and find out he he was actually diagnosed with a mental illness. And um, he's on a path. And I'm not on that path with him. And it's okay. It's okay to love an alcoholic even when they don't love you back. And it doesn't mean you have to live with them, and it doesn't mean you have to walk with them. It's okay to love an alcoholic. And I got to step back and let God do some work because I had learned from the first episode that when I add my drama and my bad decisions onto a bad situation, it only gets uglier. And so I stepped way back, and I got to practice emotional prudence, as my sponsor calls it. What is that? Um I'm the kind of person who tells everybody everything and every detail. And um, my sponsor told me that to get up in front, even here or in a meeting, and share about things that were happening to him um, in the name of my recovery was wrong. And that that was his story. And that I had a teenage daughter and a little boy who needed to feel some semblance of pride towards their dad. And they needed to feel like their home was safe. And that I wasn't the one sharing everything with everybody and it was really hard for me to pull back and get a small circle of support and share things with people like I'm going through a rough time if you could pray for me I'd appreciate it and that was it and that was super hard and people said things to me like I think you're isolating and I'm worried about you and I would cry to my sponsor and I'd say I'm not isolating I feel like I'm working my program harder than I've ever worked it and she would say maybe only you and God are supposed to know that And maybe this is just a big piece of humble pie. And when you get through this to the other side, you'll be able to look back and feel good. And I will tell you that three and a half years later, I have maintained a dignity that I didn't know was possible for a person like me. And I have maintained some kind of semblance of order in my family to where 
I feel good about the mom I am. I really do. And my kids have not had to suffer even more because of my actions, because alcoholism has already ripped its ugly head through our home. And there is hope. I am powerless. I am not hopeless. Our family is still a family. We are broken. We are not together, but we are still a family. And I've got to sit my little boy down and my girl who are in two different worlds completely. And it is crazy. Um, But sit them down and say, we will have dinner. I am going to cook. We are still a family. We will do things together, even though, you know, it hasn't worked out the way I wanted it to. And somebody mentioned the happies and crappies. We actually do that at dinner, but we call them bummers. Um, (laughs) You know, otherwise my little boy is going to be saying that at school. Happy and crappy time! Just like I have to throw this out, I started this divorce recovery group, and my my son loves it so much. He's like, "When are we going to divorce recovery?" And um, so I started saying "dr." So now we call it "dr." And he's like, "Is it dr. tonight?" Because he just loves the kids that are there. And um, you know, and and basically it's like program, right? He goes to this this a little babysitting room, and he's in this room with other kids who are from families going through divorce, right? It's like one alcoholic talking to another, and he feels safe in that babysitting room, and he loves to play with those kids because they have, the light, they have a similarity that connects them. But they don't talk about it. They play, just like we do in Al-Anon, right? We're connected because we have a common problem, but we, we, we play. We talk about recovery. That's what keeps us together. We got here because of the problem, but we stay together because of the solution. Anyway, so here's my life today. I don't have a happy ending for you um, because it hasn't come yet. And um, I'm a big believer in seasons. My sponsor talks about it, and I'm in a season of sacrifice. And today, the two biggest Al-Anon commitments are named Luke and Carissa. And I am giving to those kids and making my living amends and doing the best I can, um, running around, doing what I need to do so that they feel like their home is safe, so they are protected. And, um, and you know, my uh, – well, actually, we call him my husband – because it seems softer, but he is welcome in our home. He comes to our home. Um, in fact, he is, you know, sleeping in our, in our at my house tonight um, with our son. And these conferences that I get to, I, I don't know why, all of a sudden when my life blew up the second time, I started getting asked to share my story. And I was like, why are people asking me to share so they can feel better about their lives? Like, what is that? <laughs> you know, my life is falling apart and people want me to speak. And, um, My sponsor said when the recovery is real, that's when people heal. And you have a gift to being honest, and people want that, want to hear that. And so you show up with a willingness. God will give you the strength, and the recovery will happen for you and for others. And so I believe that. And like I shared at the very beginning, it is totally cool how it's worked out because my son um, does not ever spend the night, nor does my daughter, spend the night with him at his little bachelor pad. Um, But when we go on these retreats, he gets to be with his dad three days and two nights. And I get to be with my daughter, and we get to have this time together, and God is efficient. And um, all I got to do was be, all I have to do is be willing, and the blessings will come. And, you know, again, this is not the way I wanted my life to be, but isn't that the whole point of recovery? You know, what am I going to do with the life that's being given to me? And I know there's more. I've learned in Al-Anon to do things for myself. as part of my program, rather than being a big old martyr, you know, because nobody benefits. And I I, I still get into that. But I will tell you, um, he, uh, my husband, um, got a new girlfriend who's benefiting from all the work I did on him. And um, I pray for them. And... uh, But what it did for me is it was a wake-up call. And I thought, you know, I'm not in that season to go and meet someone. And I know that. Um, And I know that day will come again. And I picture it like my heart is in a cast. You know, if I broke my foot, I would put it in a cast and I would let God do the healing. And I would elevate my foot and I would take care of it. And I wouldn't crack it open and say, no, we're going to run today. Um, And so my heart is in a cast and I, I trust that God's doing the healing and it will work again. Um, but that is not my season. So I started sharing, like, what, what do I, I have all this, you know, frustration and anger, and I, I don't want to feel this way anymore. And that's a great prayer, by the way. Lord, I'm feeling angry. I'm willing to feel differently. Show me how. And, um, 
And so my sponsor told me to make a list of my interests. And I started to do that. And I will tell you that the things that I'm involved in is I love to cook. I love to garden. I am now training for a marathon. And I love to write. And those four things I don't get to do every day. But those are four things that I'm passionate about. That when I, you know, my head gets into, you know, picturing them off together. Having fun. I think about those four things. And, you know, they're wonderful because it's just like the program. You know, they're things that I need to cultivate and get better at and really learn about. And it brings me to other people who are interested in those things. And then I'm starting to make friends. And and um, and I've become a better example to my kids. I remember my daughter saying to me a year and a half ago, you're eating ice cream every night, Mom. And um, and so I told on her to my sponsor, like, can you believe that? I mean, I could be out drinking or partying or having sex or whatever. And instead, I'm home being a good mom. And so what if I'm eating ice cream every day? I still go to work in the morning. And and, um, (laughs) you know, right. And um, and my sponsor said, well, she could be right. And I was like, what? You can't side with her. And then she said something amazing. She said, you know, your daughter's getting older and this might be the last lesson get to teach her you know how do you just deal with disappointment in life is it through ice cream is that really what you want to show her and I know it sounds petty but to me it was profound and I thought yeah this might be the last time I get to share something with her of how to walk through life and so I started to amp up my program and really start to take this one day at a time thing seriously and say okay bloom where you're planted this is where I'm at for a time. I'm not going to say, oh, I'm going to be happy when I get here or someday my prince will come. Whatever. Right now, I have a prince. His name is Luke. He adores me. He tells me, Mommy, you are so beautiful when you wear flowers in your hair. Are you kidding me? I wear flowers every weekend. I mean, wouldn't you? Every weekend I put a flower in my hair just to hear that little sweet voice. Um, and I, I have an amazing life. I really do. Those gratitude lists change everything. Change everything. If I made a list to you right now of what a snapshot of what my world looks like, it's really good. It's really, really good. It's me. If I put on those negative glasses, it's me who can change it all, distort it all. Um, So I'm choosing to be better than I was yesterday, and I'm expectant that tomorrow I'm going to be even better than today. So thank you so much for joining me in this journey and for listening to my story. We hope you enjoyed this recording. If you are interested in other speaker tapes or CDs from AA or Al-Anon, please contact us at Sound Solutions, toll-free, 1-877-893-2777, or visit us on the web at SoundSolutionsRecording.com. We are also available to cover your recording and sound system needs. Thank you for allowing us to be of service and carrying the message.